and a big welcome to WISO Weekend. I'm Jerry Kenny. Coming up in the next half hour, two local teens tell us how they're coping with social distancing. That's coming up in Dayton Youth Radio. And we'll hear from a teacher who's noticed how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting students she's teaching online. We've got veterans' voices and more coming up. First, social distancing is here for the foreseeable future, but for people who are blind, contact with others can be essential for many daily life tasks. Community Voices producer Susan Burns tells us how one person without sight is managing during the pandemic. A few months before COVID-19 hit the U.S., my next-door neighbor Jan came home with a new seeing-eye dog. That's a good boy! Let me listen. Forward. When Jan recently asked me to help her learn a new walking route with her dog, I was nervous. Normally, this would involve a sighted person guiding her by taking her elbow. With social distancing, we couldn't do that, so during our walk, I followed six feet behind while Jan and her dog navigated intersections, trash cans, and uneven sidewalks. There's the toe stumper up. Jan lost her sight 45 years ago, and this is her sixth dog guide, so she's very experienced. As we walked, I asked her if she was afraid of getting too close to people on the sidewalk now because of the virus. So I have to trust that people will kind of give me the distance I need. I've seen them do that. Yeah. Most of the time. I've had two incidences where where, uh, one I actually brushed up against. I went right home and took off my shirt and put it in the laundry and washed my, where we touched. You know, it's just one of those things. And that was like four weeks ago. And I'm still on my feet. <laughs> I'm doing good. Do you worry about that? No, I just try to manage it as best I can. That's all I can do. I'm not going to stay in my house in fear. At the age of 70, Jan works as a licensed counselor, a job she's now doing from home on the phone. Being cut off from people has been hard. The other day, her smartphone stopped responding. She couldn't get it to work and was almost in a panic. I am accustomed to being around somebody just about every day. Because of the virus and my need to limit my contact with people, I've gone days without seeing anybody. When I did have contact with somebody, they looked at my phone and said, Jan, you got something all over your screen. That's why it's not working properly. I believe because of the ongoing stress of our current situation and crisis with this corona, uh, kind of being overwhelmed, it took that added event to kind of tip me over the edge as far as just flat out stressing out. And the only thing I knew to do was to walk out my stress. <laughs> so I, I harnessed up my, my dog guide and went on a power walk in the rain, in the cold for about an hour and a half. Jan has a strong sense of self-reliance, and it's been tested by the pandemic. She says in some ways she's become more independent because her normal support network is not able to be there. 
But there's one thing Jan has always done without needing any help. If you don't maintain your steadiness, you will go wobbly, and that's the beginning of the end, really, of a pot. In her basement, she keeps a potter's wheel and a kiln that she can operate with braille-labeled buttons. I come down here by myself, and it's kind of like I can escape the troubles of the world. Just before an injury caused her to lose her sight, she learned pottery and later taught it for 20 years. Lately, working with clay is a way for her to deal with uncertainty. None of us know what the course of this is going to be or how many deaths and as much personal trauma that I have had. I always had an idea or the belief that I would survive it. This, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I have that concrete belief. Now what I'm doing, I'm just holding on to it a little bit gently and taking out that little bit of wobble, you see, just for the final touch. This is Susan Burns for WYSO. Culture Couch is made possible by a generous grant from the Ohio Arts Council. Gabriel and Sarah Boslett are doctors who have been married for almost 20 years. Sarah was diagnosed early this year with breast cancer. Soon, the world began dealing with another health crisis, the coronavirus pandemic. The Boslets spoke with reporter Lauren Bavis about the hard choices they made to balance their essential work in health care and their family's health and safety. It's part of the Essential Voices series from Side Effects Public Media. I found out I had cancer uh, January 15th of 2020. I had gone in for a mammogram only because my mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer the week before. Six days after my mom got her diagnosis, um, I got the same diagnosis. You know, as a spouse, it's a it's a very, very helpless kind of place to be. Uh, and, you know, so, so my job sort of became to try as best as I could to wrangle our four kids, but then also go to her chemotherapy appointments. So I had already started chemotherapy. I was two rounds in when the coronavirus issue really came up. One of the worst things to me is that I have to go to all of these appointments, these horrible appointments by myself. The one thing I could do was be there for every step, and now you can't even do that. So yeah, it's just, it's a bad feeling. I think early on when coronavirus really hit here in Indiana, I was very concerned. But honestly, the the way that I was the most worried was I was worried about my husband going to the hospital and, and getting it there and bringing it home. I am a pulmonary and critical care physician at IU Health and Indiana University School of Medicine. In the United States, pulmonary doctors also are generally the doctors that take care of patients in the intensive care unit. My entire adult life education has sort of led to this. This is the probably the defining moment of intensive care medicine ever, period. Gabe and I have four kids. Our twins are 14, and then we have a 10-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. And I remember Gabe and I having a conversation where I, you know, I, I had to be like, look, I, I'm already in a risky situation, and I already had to make sure my will was okay, and I still have surgery ahead of me. If we both are at risk, you know, if, if you get this coronavirus and get very sick and die, and I have breast cancer, you know, th- then what? 
being a physician, I think most see it as a calling. You don the armor and you go in to battle and, and what happens, happens. And it's not that I didn't have the armor, I did. It's just that bringing the enemy home would have been disastrous. What wound up happening is that my colleagues and my division chair were like, look, you're just not going to do the ICU. A large part of me wants to be there because this is what I've trained to do. It's like, you know, training for a marathon and then the week of getting sick and not being able to run, right? I mean, you've done all of this preparation. You just want to go. I feel guilty by the fact that others are putting themselves in harm's way to protect me and Sarah. I'm a general pediatrician. If I were able to, I would want to still be in the throes of all of this. And because I can't be there, um, I know that my partners can do it. I just have a, a sense of guilt that they have to not only do all of that, but also take care of my patients too. I knew my job was important, but I didn't realize that it was so central to my identity until I had to give it up. I'm taking two weeks off after Sarah's surgery to, to help her recovery. It's, it's my hope that she's doing well for multiple reasons. And it's, it's not the first reason. It's probably the third or fourth that I want to get back to working in the intensive care unit. But it is, that's a major reason that I want her to, her to get better so quickly. My immune system should improve. Um, and so I'm hopeful that later this summer I can go back to work. I hope that there's a day in a year or two when I look back and just can't believe that we lived through this. Doctors Gabriel and Sarah Boslett from Indiana. Find more first-person stories from the front line of the pandemic on our website, wyso.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is WISO Weekend. The Southwest Ohio Council on Higher Education estimates that more than 90% of the Miami Valley's college students switched to online learning in early March. That means that approximately 135,000 students are not in the classroom of local colleges and universities. Danielle Rubart is a lecturer at the University of Dayton. She's teaching 140 students this semester, and she's noticed a lot about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting them. One of my favorite classes to teach is Principles of Sociology. At the beginning of each semester, we cover a concept called the sociological imagination. It was developed in the 1960s by a sociologist named C. Wright Mills. Mills argued that each of us needs to have this thing called the sociological imagination. Having this would allow us to see how history and bigger events in society impact our personal lives and the lives of others. Being able to see how broader macro-level structures and events shape our lives made sense for Mills. After all, he lived through some profound societal changes, two world wars, a depression, women's suffrage, and the early years of the civil rights movement. Each of these were moments in history that shaped lives, families, and communities in lasting ways. Now, it can be hard for us to take on the sociological imagination. After all, don't we like to believe that each of us is responsible for our own fate? America was founded and raised on beliefs of individualism and a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality. This culture, this individualistic culture we live in, can make it challenging to open minds in the classroom to the sociological imagination. 
to the idea that events and forces outside ourselves can fundamentally shape who we are and the challenges or opportunities we face. But now, now things are different. Now we are living in a COVID-19 world. As I continue to teach principles of sociology this semester, students are sharing how they are personally experiencing the impacts of a virus that is much bigger than themselves. Lost financial stability, lost opportunities, lost plans, lost relationships, lost life, and subsequently, grief. As their instructor, when I read their discussion board posts and reflection papers, I find myself feeling proud of how each of their sociological imaginations have grown. But I also find myself feeling sad that it is through these circumstances that the sociological imagination has become most alive for them. From the abstract series and in-class examples to the intimately real, personal, and tangible experiences of the pandemic, this is how the sociological imagination has come alive for them, for all of us. But the fact is, the sociological imagination wasn't meant to leave us feeling powerless. It was actually meant to empower us. Mills saw the sociological imagination as an essential tool for social responsibility. When we choose to be part of social movements and collective action, when we give of ourselves to others, and when we demand basic rights for others, others who may be in more challenging circumstances than ourselves. When we do these things, we can in turn impact individual lives in positive ways too. It is here where we can find empowerment. It is here where we can creatively turn back toward each other, albeit from a distance, to be part of something bigger, something bigger that can also impact individual lives for good. It is here where we can organize and create. It is here where we can reach out. It is here where we can give voice to those who have been denied voice. It is here where we can be part of a social force that helps push back on all the types of loss and grief that this pandemic presents us with. And it is here where students, where all of us, can find not just meaning from the sociological imagination, but also hope. That was Dr. Danielle Rubart, a lecturer at the University of Dayton, with some personal thoughts about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting her students. And this week on Dayton Youth Radio, we continue our series called Teens in Quarantine with two stories from students at Fairmont High School. First, we'll hear from Max Gallenstein, who's a big sports fan. And then we'll hear from Ethan McFerrin, who produces dance music from his bedroom recording studio. Hello, my name is Max Gallenstein. I'm a junior at Fairmont High School. I live with my two parents, Mary and Philip, and I have two older brothers. Like other students, I'm doing my classes online. One thing I like about online school is being able to do it at my own pace and so I can go and work in the morning and then come home and do school later. I've also been working a lot for my parents at Big Sky Bread Company. I help make the bread, make the muffins and the cookies. And when we finish, I go and do the dishes for everybody. We have been making a lot of bread and donating lots of it to the Fairmont Backpack Program, Catholic Social Services. My family and I, were just trying to help out as many people as possible right now. Uh, I'm not too worried about anyone close to me getting the virus, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to say that I don't know anyone that's been affected by it, and I feel pretty lucky right now. My brother Jack and I have been playing a lot of basketball in our backyard to pass the time. I think I was in fourth grade. We moved into our new house, 
and my grandpa came over to our house and built a little uh, basketball court in our backyard. And we've used it almost every single day since then. One cool memory I think that I'll have from this whole time is that we're living in a time when all sports have been canceled, including the Olympics, which is just crazy. I miss not seeing the Reds games on TV every night. Every year we always go to like four or five baseball games and it's kind of, it just stinks that they're not playing. So I definitely miss March Madness the most, especially because I really felt like UD had a really good chance this year at making a really good run, possibly even winning the NCAA championship. So that was really disappointing when they canceled March Madness. What I want to tell the listeners is that everyone just needs to keep their heads up and We'll get through this time, and uh, everybody should just enjoy the extra time they get to spend with their family. For Dayton Youth Radio and Kettering Fairmont High School, this is Max Gallenstein. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Ethan McFerrin. I'm 17 years old. It kind of sucks that I'm not going to get the same treatment as other junior classes. It really does bum me out, you know? Especially because some of the events coming up in my life, like junior prom... And I also had a job shadow coming up at Encore Recording Studios in Dayton. So the state shutdown, you know, kind of happened at a crappy time for me. I work at Mark's Grocery, and since the shutdown, my hours have been picking up a lot. I've gotten to prove that I'm a hard worker to them. I started just stocking shelves, but then after the first week, they trained me in meat department and cashier. Mark's as a company has really kept us safe providing us gloves to change out and sanitation of all touch points in the store. Everyone there is a wonderful human being to work with, and I enjoy it very much. I'd say I get my schoolwork done in a timely fashion, usually. Then I have the rest of the day to make music. I love being creative in different ways and finding cool ways to express myself. If you have a hobby you love, now is the time to learn more about it and become more proficient in whatever it is you're doing. I really enjoy electronic music. Electronic dance music is made on, on a computer and it's played out at raves, parties, festivals, or just to listen to. Um, here's a sample of some of my music I've made at home. I have a ton of equipment for a bedroom producer. I have a vast array of microphones, MIDI controllers. I use Audio-Technica M50 headphones. I use that to produce all my work. I record under my alias Frixel. So my big album just uh, came out last week. You can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, on SoundCloud, and you know anything you can really think of right now. It's out on there. Um, the album is called The Mechanics EP. I've spent months on this album, and everything is done by me, and I take a lot of pride in that. This is a time for learning and mastering. Use it to your advantage, it'll work out in the end. For Dayton Youth Radio of Fairmont High School, this is Ethan McFerrin. That's Teens in Quarantine, written and produced by Max Gallenstein and Ethan McFerrin juniors at Fairmount High School. Special thanks to Laura Hutchins. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Basim Blunt.
Find more Dayton Youth Radio on our website at wyso.org. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us. This is YSO Weekend. County Lines is WISO's series about small towns and rural communities of the Miami Valley. This year, we're bringing you the voices of women living and working in the rural parts of southwest Ohio. Before the coronavirus pandemic, producer Renee Wild met with faculty and students at Wilmington College in Clinton County and heard their ideas about rural life and the prospects for a career in agriculture. Here's Renee with the second story in our series. Wilmington College is a Quaker college founded on the tenets of the Quaker religion. Simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and stewardship. In this interview, Corey Cockrell, who teaches agricultural communications at Wilmington College, talks with student Lucy Inge about how the Quaker tenets apply to rural life and their shared hope for a revival of our rural communities. My name is Corey Cockrell and I'm an Associate Professor of Communication Arts and Agriculture at Wilmington College in Ohio. I'm Lucy Engie, and I'm a student at Wilmington College uh, studying political science, but concentrating in food policy and agricultural advocacy, and also minoring in peace studies and race, gender, and ethnicity. I wonder if we could talk about Quakers for just a second. It seems apropos because we're a Quaker college, and we happen to be a rural institution that offers a four-year degree in agriculture, so it makes us especially unique. You can apply a lot of the Quaker testimonies, which uh, kind of consolidate into the nice acronym SPICES. Um, So you have simplicity, peace, integrity, community, quality, and stewardship. Simplicity definitely ties in the choices we make. Also, just like the options we have around us, it kind of forces simplicity in a lot of light. Community is obviously uh, central. And stewardship, we have to care for the land around us. And I think that's really going to become more of an important topic in rural America and how commercial farming is and how that's maybe going to have to change if cover crops are going to become a big part of that future. And from conversations I've had, that seems like that's going to be um, the next thing that's coming. What do you think stands out as um, compelling reasons to move to a rural community? I don't think living in a rural area is for everyone. Um, my grandmother grew up in a in rural Adams County in the 40s and couldn't get out of there fast enough. She wanted to see concrete the rest of her life and moved to Dayton and became a nurse. And her brother stayed and worked for GE and they farmed and they have cattle down there still. I think it's almost a calling. It's like people want something, whether it's a closer connection to their food or to nature or that smaller community, they might already have ties to that, or it's been a dream forever. I don't I don't know if it can be exactly sold per se. I think for some people, myself included, it's just you see in your future you want to have that piece of land and that house and that garden and, and be involved in local politics and your local church and that community and having that experience. How you explain it, that rural experience seems on point with what young people are seeking today, the connection to nature that um, maybe has been uh, disconnected in the past. I was reading a really interesting article. It was about this agritarian community that's in Warren County, and this woman is developing her family's old farmland. It's sort of this development, but it includes a farm in it. That, that was sort of like an example of what I could see selling to the greater public about like living in a rural community and being tied in directly to your food. And I think that might be like where that's headed. Richard Louvre has a book on Last Child in the Woods. I don't know if you've read that before. 
um, but it talks about this disconnect with nature and what are the implications of that down the line. And ultimately, I see a return to nature coming from the words of students. This is what they want, and they're seeking it more and more, and I feel like that's um, a recovery from that detachment, perhaps. Also, you talk about community and wanting to have more community and a deeper sense of family within your community. And just the way you talk about that, it seems like perhaps there's a revival coming, a a return to to rural communities um, that I find super exciting and what I want most for you guys coming, coming in as the next generation. So it sounds like there's a lot of hope there. That was Wilmington College professor Corey Cockrell with student Lucy Inge. I'm Renee Weil, the producer of County Lines, WYSO series that takes listeners into the small towns and rural communities of the Miami Valley. This story was produced in conjunction with the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices. County Lines is made possible by a grant from Ohio Humanities. You know, the world is now a global village. People everywhere are realizing the importance of learning, understanding, and appreciating different cultures. Today on Veterans Voices, Vietnam veteran Stephen Wyke of Kettering shares how his life has been enriched by serving in the military. My birth father had passed away, and we went to live with my brother who was in the Air Force in Biloxi, Mississippi. And after a couple years down there, I decided... There was nothing available for me after high school. I just turned 17 on, in September when I enlisted, uh, so I went in the Army, and my mother signed for me and spent the next 12 years on active duty. But it wasn't uneventful. I was able to work up to the rank of sergeant in my first tour in Vietnam and then go to OCS, became a, an officer in '66. And I got out as a captain uh, after those 12 years. They fired me. I was rift. I thought I was a pretty sharp guy. Uh, but they had too many captains, and I, and I, I had my fill. I'm just fine, thank you, and I, I got out. Uh, military service taught me the equality of human beings and the value uh, because I was able to serve with Okinawans, Japanese, Germans, uh, Israeli, uh, Arabs out of Jordan and uh, Libya, Vietnamese, Cambodians. Uh, Within Vietnam alone, there were Tonkins, Cochins, uh, Viets, uh, the Motonyads, all sorts of tribal backgrounds represented in the various training facilities we operated. And I just noticed how incredible it was for me at my young age to be exposed to so many beautiful cultures. And the question as a young man was, why can't we get along? (laughs) Seriously, we're all the same. We're born into this world identical. uh, And at some point we have to check out. It's that point between the coming and the going that we just have to get coordinated a little better. I believe that everything we've experienced, especially in my case through the military those 12 years, was very significant. Uh, 
because we're able to take a glean from each of those experiences something that we can build on today and with the focus on trying to make things a little bit better. Because those who have been in the military, we, we understand that things are not always perfect. And we try to these various assignments that we went into to find out who we were, what could we do to make things better. And I think I've been able to develop a meaningful philosophy over the years, and, and that's what I love talking about. So if somehow I can promote a little more respect and maturity between human beings, I would leave this world with a smile on my face. Vietnam veteran Stephen Weick told his story at WISO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WISO is presented by Wright Pat Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. This story was edited by Will Davis and created at the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO. And that's a wrap on today's show. I'm Jerry Kenny. We'll be back with you next Sunday. Now, stay with us for Vic McCunis and the Book Nook.